Good morning, Chapel Hill. <laughs> I'm smiling. Uh, as many of you know, uh, four weeks ago I was uh, stricken with Bell's palsy. The symptoms of Bell's palsy include facial paralysis, so the right side of my face was drooping down and angled. Uh, my eye was paralyzed. It was wide open uh, and, and wouldn't shut. It uh, can turn uh, mealtime into a spectator sport. Uh, Cindy really enjoyed taking me to restaurants and seeing how much I left on the table. Uh, it also impairs uh, your speech a little bit. In my case, I couldn't say words that had F or P in them. Well, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm doing uh, great, and I'm so grateful to the Lord. I'm so grateful to all of you, my sweetheart church, for your prayers and your meals and your cards and your advice. Lots of advice. So much advice. <laughs> Boy, keep that coming. Uh, I'm particularly grateful for, to, for our team, uh, led so capably by Pastor Ellis, who stepped right up to preach sermons he wasn't supposed to be preaching, but he stepped right into it. I'm very grateful for it. We have a great team, and I know you are aware of it. We are so blessed. Two weeks before I was stricken, you might recall, I preached a prayer on the power of evil. Remember that? I said evil's more evil than we can know. And, uh, and then the week after that, I preached a prayer on our need for revival. And I remember someone coming up after that second sermon saying, you better watch out because when you start preaching this way, the devil's going to come after you. Uh, I wonder, is it a coincidence that the very next day the attack came? I don't think so. I think we have an enemy, the evil one that we pray about in the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't want us to have revival. He doesn't want to be called out. Well, we're going to call him out anyway, because the good news is greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen? Amen. So we're going to continue in our journey through Luke's great gospel. Last week we saw Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and Peter and uh, John. And while they were there, they got a glimpse of Jesus in all of His glory. Not just Jesus as the, uh, as the humble carpenter, but Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus as the Chosen One. Jesus whose clothing was white as lightning. Jesus, who was having a chat with his good friends, Moses and Elijah. Jesus, who gets a shout-out from his heavenly Father. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. It was an eye-opener for the disciples. Literally, as it turns out, because they had fallen asleep. An incredible mountaintop experience. But then they came back down. Their spiritual high didn't last too long. Because upon returning from the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, they were confronted by a desperate father who was longing for his son to be healed. His boy had a demon, a demon that caused him to go into convulsions and threw him to the ground. The disciples who had remained behind weren't able to do anything about it. Even though Jesus had given them authority to cast out evil spirits, for some reason they couldn't. And so the man comes and appeals to Jesus. And of course, with a single word, Jesus rebukes the demon, he restores the boy, and the text says he gave him back to his father. I just need to parenthetically say at this point, when I read that phrase, he gave him back to his father, that is the business that we are in, giving children back to their parents. 
We live in a time when children are being taken away from their parents. They are being separated from their care and their supervision and their authority and their nurture and their spiritual guidance. And Jesus' ministry is to give children back to their parents. And we are going to be a part of that ministry. We're going to continue to be a part of that. The people saw this happening and everyone, we are told, was astonished at the majesty of God. That's how they described what they saw Jesus doing. They were astonished at the majesty of God. I love that. And that brings us to our morning's text. It starts with Jesus telling his disciples that he's going to give them something really important to listen to, and they utterly fail at listening to it. And then it ends with one of my favorite verses in the, Luke of God, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, a verse that has really guided me, especially in the latter years of my 40 years of ministry. So, would you turn with me? It's a little longer text, so lean into it, really pay attention, but it's such a rich passage. It, we're in Luke chapter 9. We'll start at the first part of verse 43 and continue on. Luke 9, 43. So, all were astonished at the at, at the majesty of God, but while they were still marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, drew, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. So in recent weeks, we've been talking a lot about revival, haven't we? It got us going when we heard what the Lord was doing in universities throughout the country. Remarkable stirrings there, awakenings in the, among the student body. 
Uh, we've heard recently that the film Jesus Revolution has generated a, a spiritual awakening in Hawaii. And if you want me to investigate personally and report back to you, I'll be very happy to do so. <laughs> Last week, Pastor Ellis preached an incredible message on revival, and then in response to that call, more than 300 of you showed up for worship and prayer that night. It was the largest uh, gathering of that sort that I can recall. And a prayer crying out for, to the Lord for revival. I'm praying for revival. I think many of you have joined me in praying for revival. Our elders are praying for revival and asking, what would it mean? What would it mean to Chapel Hill if the Lord answered our prayer for revival? Well, here's one thing revival always means. Revival always always means the awakening of lukewarm Christians. It always means the stirring of the listless Christian. Do you remember a time in your own Christian journey, perhaps early on, when you were so excited, so on fire, so passionate, you couldn't read the Bible enough, you couldn't pray enough, you couldn't go to church enough, you couldn't share your faith enough? And yet for so many of us, as the years pass, our passion begins to fade, and we become what the book of Revelation calls lukewarm. You remember what Jesus said about lukewarm, right? It's neither hot nor cold. I want to spit it out of my mouth. Historically, the first important work, and when I say historically, in our nation over the centuries, the first important work of revival that the Holy Spirit does is to fire up lukewarm Christians. Those believers who have lost their passion, those who are not producing fruit, those who no longer share their faith or never have, and who have come to believe that Christianity is just this, just a, a one-hour nod to God on Sunday mornings. It's way more than that. And the Spirit wants to revive us. I want you to take a look at the word revival. It's redoing something. The Holy Spirit takes those who are already vived to who are already alive in Christ, and revives them, stirs them anew, inspires them anew, focuses them anew. It takes those who have tucked Jesus into a corner of their life and recenters us on Him, refills us with His Holy Spirit, recommits them to His church and His mission, revives us. Does anyone here need reviving? I think we do. Does our city need reviving? I think it does. Does our nation need reviving? God knows it does. If the Holy Spirit chooses to do a work of revival in this church that's what it's going to mean. And here is how it's going to start. Jesus and His call upon our lives will begin to take priority. Jesus and His call upon our lives will begin to take priority. Jesus will become most important. And every other important and valuable thing in our life will be centered around Him, will revolve around Him. He will be first and honestly, that's asking a lot because most Christians, if they are honest, would admit that their faith is an important part of their life, perhaps, but maybe not the center of their life. That's why Jesus talks so much about the cost of following Him, the cost of discipleship, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously put it. And that struggle of prioritizing Jesus over everything is exactly what we discover near the end of our reading. Today I'm going to start, and usually I want to start at the end and work backwards. Because at the end of our text, we meet some wannabe disciples. They would like to be a disciple of Jesus. They come to Jesus and say, we want to follow you. But then comes the tagline. But first, 
Did you see it? We want to follow you, Jesus, but first let me go and bury my father. I want to follow you, Jesus, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus' response actually seems almost harsh. It's as if he doesn't care about us fulfilling our responsibilities to our family. And we know that's not his heart because his teaching in other places lifts up the value of marriage, lifts up the importance of caring for your family, of being a great family member. So that's not what he's saying. But here's what he is saying. Here's the important point that he's making. There are no but firsts for disciples of Jesus. Either he is your Lord or he's not. We are either followers of Jesus or we are not. And if we are, then that should be, must be, our first and highest priority. And every other thing in our life aligns to that. That is asking a lot. And it is exactly what Jesus asks of us. He asks it anyhow. I love my wife more than anyone in the world, but I am first a follower of Jesus. I love my granddaughter more than anything. She is my light and my life. I am first a follower of Jesus. And the punchline for all of this priority talk comes in verse 62, one of my favorite verses. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke is the only one who tells us that verse. He's the only one that captured it. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What do you think Jesus is saying here? Pastor Ellis recently got me hooked on a, uh, a Netflix series called Clarkson's Farm. Any of you seen it? It is hilarious. A little crude sometimes, but very funny. It's a documentary about a British TV personality, Jeremy Clarkson, who decides, knowing nothing about farming, to buy and run a huge farm. And the first thing he does is purchase the biggest tractor you have ever seen. It is a mammoth tractor to plow and to plant his fields. And he botches it. He, his efforts are so pathetic. His crop rows are squiggly. He misses entire sections of the field. He runs over stuff. He is a terrible plower. And that's the metaphor Jesus is using here. Jesus says if a farmer looks backward as he plows over his shoulder, he's going to wander all over the place. The only way to get a straight line, he said, is to take the plow firmly in hand, set your eyes on a target in the distance, and plow like your life depended on it. Never let yourself be distracted or deterred by what's going on behind you or around you. And this wasn't just Jesus' good advice to his wannabe disciples. It was actually autobiographical. It was a description of his own journey and especially where he was in that moment. Because when you come to today's reading in chapter 9, you are coming to a turning point. A moment when Jesus' attention begins to shift from healing and preaching and miracle working and casting out of demons. It shifts now to the real reason that he came, the prior reason that he came to earth in the first place. And he hints at it, and when he tells his clueless disciples, let these words sink into your ears. This is the only time Jesus ever says that. Let these words sink into your ears, and they don't have a clue. Even when he's done talking, they don't have a clue. Maybe they're thinking, maybe after the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration, maybe after yet another incredible exorcism, maybe with all the crowds marveling at him and finding in him the, the majesty of God, maybe he's ready for the first time to come clean. 
Maybe he's ready to tell them, you're right. What you suspected all along is true. I am the Messiah. I am the chosen one. And I have come to deliver you from the hands of the Romans. But if that's what they were expecting, they were disappointed. Because what he wants to sink into their ears is not that he's going to deliver them from the Romans, but that he himself will be delivered into the Romans' hands. He is headed to Jerusalem to do what he came to earth to do, to offer himself on a cross to redeem the world from its sin. This is his priority. This is why Jesus came. And nothing is going to deter him. Nothing is going to distract him from his mission. In fact, twice in this passage we read that he set his face toward Jerusalem. You see that? He set his face. What does that mean? It means complete resolve. He is focused. He is determined. He has set his hand to the plow. He has set his eye on the prize. And nothing will distract him. But those disciples certainly try. The whole of this passage these knuckleheads are doing everything they can to distract the Lord from what he's, His calling is. For instance, I want you to listen to the very next verse. The very next verse after Jesus has said, here's what I want to let sink into yours. I'm going to be going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be taken by my, uh, by my captors. That's His impending death. The very next verse after them we read, an argument arose among them as to which was the greatest. Jesus says, let this sink into your ears. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of my murderers. And the disciples reply, sorry, what's that, Jesus? We, we couldn't hear you because we were too busy arguing about which of us is the greatest. It is such a pathetic, tone-deaf power struggle. And here's the first would-be distraction power, this power struggle. Any of you ever been in a power struggle? Any of you ever found yourself battling for status or title or recognition or a job at work or school or at home? You want to be in control. You want to be recognized for your accomplishments. You want power. And Jesus says, don't take the bait. He pulls over a kid next to him. I, I imagine him kneeling down next to him. He says, if you want to be great, don't seek greatness. If you want to be great, humble yourself. Make yourself least and serve those who are least. That's what greatness is in my kingdom. So the first distraction is this stupid power struggle between the disciples. I want to be best. No, I'm the greatest. And the next distraction... Petty rivalries. Petty rivalries. Some guy who isn't a part of their circle is going around casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And this ticks them off. It irks them. Maybe their pride was still stinging because they couldn't cast the demon out of that boy earlier in this chapter. But here's a guy who's not even a member of their club doing what they couldn't do. And notice this. They don't get angry with the guy because he isn't following Jesus. He's doing this in Jesus' name. They're mad because, quote, he does not follow with us. He does not follow with us. In other words, he wasn't a part of their team and they didn't like it. They were the chosen 12. Who did this upstart think that he was? It's pure pettiness. 
One of my personal challenges in my 40 years of ministry has to avoid, been to avoid being petty about other churches and other pastors. When some young hotshot plants a, a new cool church in town, I find it easy for me to get jealous. When longtime members, people who I've led to Christ, people who I've baptized, people who I've ministered to in, in illness and death, when they leave to go somewhere else, it hurts me. I remember one person saying, listen, it's nothing personal. I said, it's all personal to me. And, and frankly, it, it threatens me sometimes because I want them to be a part of my club. More than once, I've had to confess to the Lord my ill will, my gossipy criticism about another pastor or another church. And in this passage, Jesus reminds me, don't be petty, tune. I have more resources at my disposal than Chapel Hill, and you stay in your lane and don't get distracted with your pettiness. So I see here power, I see here pettiness, and then finally, I see the disciples trying to distract Jesus with prejudice. The prejudice went with the Samaritan village. Samaritans were the historic enemies of the Jews. And they were considered by the Jews to be heretics. The Jews viewed them contemptuously. By the way, Luke is sweet towards the Samaritans. And you'll see more of that in the chapters to come. But they were the historic enemies. They didn't even worship at the same temple in Jerusalem. They had their own temple on their own Mount Gerizim. So they weren't that inclined to help out some rabbi of the, Jewish, of, the, of the Jews. When they discover that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, they say, we don't want to accommodate you. We don't want to have you in our village. Go somewhere else. And it is here that we discover why James and John are nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Because, and they say basically this, Jesus, since they won't rent us a hotel room, let's call down fire on them and kill them all. There's a nice measured response. Jesus rebukes them, the same word he used to rebuke the demon, by the way. He rebukes them, and he said, let's, here's another idea, let's go to another village. And that's what they do. He will not be distracted by their prejudice. These are seemingly disconnected stories, aren't they? But yet, Luke, on purpose, weaves them together. And maybe it is to show that Jesus is not going to be distracted from his calling. Not by power plays, not by pettiness, not by prejudice. His face is set toward Jerusalem. His hand is to the plow, and there's no looking back. I love this passage, this verse I have tried to live into this verse, and I wonder how it hits you. Would you say as you look at your own life that your face is set towards God's future for you? That your face is set towards His calling upon you? Are you focused on following Jesus wherever He might lead? Or is your plow line a wobbly mess because you can't keep from looking back over your shoulder? Sometimes we, we look back in regret. Oh, how I wish I'd done that. Or, oh, how I wish I hadn't done that. Ever been there? Stop it, Jesus says. That's behind you. Set your hand to the plow and don't look back. Sometimes we find ourselves looking back with shame. I don't think I can ever forgive myself for what I did. You ever been there? Stop it, Jesus says. I've forgiven you. You have been made new in me. Set your hand to the plow and don't look back. 
Sometimes we, we look back in yearning, longing for the good old glory days. And Jesus says, stop it. In me, your best is yet to come. Set your hand to the plow and don't look back. Four weeks ago, after, in the early hours after I was diagnosed, Cindy didn't even know this until this morning, when I was di diagnosed with Bell's palsy, after we returned to our condo, I went into the bathroom and shut the door and stared at the mirror, at a face I did not recognize, at a face that no longer obeyed me. My face was sagging down on one side. My right eye wouldn't shut. It was constantly weeping. I couldn't smile. I think that was the hardest thing. I couldn't smile. And my speech was impaired. And I remember thinking as I was looking at this stranger in the mirror, what will this mean for my ministry? What will this mean for my preaching? I pastor a church in Gig Harbor. I preach. I preach. And this is a place that likes things to be just so. In fact, kind of likes to pretend that it's perfect. What if, what if my imperfections are increasingly obvious? What if I never get any better than this, I wondered. Could my congregation get past my droopy face and my unblinking eye? Could they get past garbled speech? I, wa I wondered if I was done. And then, as I was reflecting on all that in my self-pity, the Lord brought to mind the Apostle Paul. The scholars tell us that Paul had a disease, probably conjunctivitis. Conjunctivitis is an eye disease that causes your eyes to sag and you weep uncontrollably. It is unsightly, it is embarrassing, it is uncomfortable. And it's probably what he was suffering from when he referred to the Galatians and said, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Three times Paul asked the Lord to deliver, them from, deliver him from what he called his thorn in the flesh. And three times Paul says, the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And then he went on to write, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm obviously grateful for the healing that I've experienced. I'm hoping it continues and finishes. But that was a profound moment for me when I found myself saying, I may not be able to do in the future what I've done in the past, but God is still in control. If He wills it, He can work through my weakness even more powerfully than when I was at full strength. And I will not live in my past. I will put my hand to the plow. I will set my eyes forward, even my unblinking eye, and I will follow the Lord. If God... If God chooses to answer our prayer and brings revival to this place, and there sure are some stirrings anyhow, one of the things that's going to mean is that more and more of us, hundreds and hundreds of us, more and more will have to begin to, to ignore the distractions in our lives, that we will set our face on Jesus, that we will set our hand to the plow, and whether we are in weakness or in full strength, we will follow Him wherever He leads whatever it costs. That is what revival looks like, and we'll have to decide if we are ready to pay that price. I pray 
I pray that we are. Lord Jesus, thank you for speaking to us this day through your word. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for saying, I must be your priority. I must be number one. I must be Lord. And all other things will find their place in and around me. God, I think that more than just I this day need to hear this, this message. More than myself, I need to be reminded that we don't live in our past, whether it's in regret or shame or our longings of our glory days. Lord, give us the courage to seek you, to set our hand to the plow, to set our eyes on your face, and to follow you wherever you lead. And when we do that, Lord, may you do a great work of revival in our hearts, in our families, in our church, in this community, and God willing, farther afield still. You can do it. We want to be a part of it, and we ask these things in your matchless name. Amen. visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 
Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. Oh, sing